0: Our philosophy is to meet people where they are and not try to shove some innovative thing down their throat if they don't necessarily want that. And the reality is our customers, our borrowers, our members, they want liquidity for their business. They want loans, yep. not coming and clamoring like, oh, I want ownership, right? They just want a good lending product. So- it's not
1: this story is about working hard even when it seems silly. It's not boring. And for the people trying to make crazy things happen. It's that of Not Boring is for the optimists. Take a little shot of optimists. Take a little shot of optimists. Let's just zoom out and take a little shot of optimists. Happy Wednesday and welcome to Not Boring Founders, the podcast where we talk to the people building the future. Today, I have the pleasure of catching up with Zach Marks, the founder of one of our Fund3 portfolio companies, Gia. Gia connects capital to small businesses in every corner of the world. Borrowers receive fair, flexible financing to grow their businesses, and investors earn sustainable yields powered by returns from real-world assets. It's an evolution of the model that Zach and his co-founder Chang built while working at the fast-growing digital lending startup Tala, using crypto on the back end to help recreate many of the things that work offline, in tight communities online, and help them scale globally. Closing the $5 trillion credit gaps in emerging markets is a problem I'm very familiar with. My sister Megan is working to solve the issue in Ghana and throughout Africa with her company Oze, and Oze and Gia are actually teaming up to crack it together, which Zach will explain. The conversation with Zach is a masterclass in how small business credit works in emerging markets today, and what the world might look like when anyone, anywhere, can lend to anyone, anywhere. Let's get to it. Zach, welcome to Not Boring Founders.
0: Oh my God. Thanks for having me, Packy. Going to make this one not boring if I can. Nice.
1: There we go. We could lie and say that you're currently in market, but you are in San Francisco right now. We are recording this on the day that our Philadelphia 76ers are about to play game six in Mm -hmm. Boston. You have some Sixers gear with you. I am a trader. I'm wearing a green shirt right now, which which I feel bad about. It was a mistake and I will burn it before the game tonight. I know I might quit the podcast. I'm not sure if your folks see this
0: on video, but I'm like waving my trust the process towel right now. Some,
1: some folks, a very small number of people will see this on, on video. (laughs) I can confirm that he's waving a trust the process towel. Speaking of the process, give me your background. Like, how'd you end up? giving loans to small businesses in developing countries? Yeah, great
0: question. We both grew up in Philly, and so we have that shared in common. So You might ask, like, why is this guy from Philly spending his career in Kenya and India and the Philippines giving loans to street vendors? And I guess it probably goes back to just a, a love for just that, for traveling, learning new languages, experiencing new cultures. I, I started my life after college as an English teacher teaching in schools in India and Brazil and Ethiopia. And when I was at these schools, I would always hang around the street vendor who was selling food outside. And, you know, in India, I was close with the chaiwala who was serving chai outside my school, Ramesh. And you spend any time with someone who's just trying to, you know, run a honest, decent business uh, in emerging markets, you just learn about this credit gap pretty quickly, right? I mean, to run Ramesh's chai business, he'd have to buy milk and tea and sugar and basic inputs. And he buys it in small, small quantities at a, at a pretty bad price, and he can't grow his business. And he's sort of always just like living day to day to try to feed his family, tries to grow his stall, but he can't. And that sort of just like was my introduction, I guess, you know, I was just fresh out of college. And so when I started my professional career after teaching, I was working as a management consultant, and I had the chance to start working on financial inclusion projects. Largely, these were sort of microfinance projects financed by the World Bank and large development institutions. And that's when I sort of got a real formal academic understanding of this challenge.
1: That's a good place to start. You hear debt and you're like, it's mm. a bad, You know, it's gotten a bad rap, but like, why is it so important for these businesses to be able to access credit?
0: Yeah, let's just make it feel real. I think it's always easier to When you read something like, oh, it's a $5 trillion credit gap in emerging markets," What does that mean? That's a big number. But okay, do we want more people getting in debt? And I don't think we want that. We've had our own challenges with credit in the States and pretty much everywhere in the world. I guess to make it feel very real, just talk about this guy I was just hanging out with last month, who's one of Gia's first borrowers named Fran. He basically runs a small spice stall in a market in Nairobi. He sells his cumin, his turmeric, his chili pepper. And while I was hanging out with him, just doing some user research... I saw a restaurant owner from a nearby restaurant come by and try to buy ten kilos of sesame seeds for his restaurant. And Francis was like, "Out," he's like, "You gotta come back tomorrow." And I just asked him, like, "Well, how often does that happen?" He's like, "Pretty regularly. I, I buy sesame seeds every other day for my wholesaler because I can either buy sort of like a twenty-five kg package or one hundred kg, and a hundred is just costs too much. I don't have that financing, so he ends up paying a much higher unit price, so he's lower margins, and he runs out of stock. This is just like a classic." example of why people need working capital financing. So we're not talking about like having people levered up on a credit card debt or taking out student loans that their careers will never really afford. This is more just like, how does someone run a business? And basically any business you step into in the U.S. is able to function because of access to working capital. But in much of the world, people don't have that access. And if you asked a Kenyan bank, well, why don't you give a loan to Francis? They'd probably say like two main answers. One, they'd say there's no data to underwrite him. I have no idea how many packages of sesame seeds he sells, so you can't really assess his credit risk. And two, he's probably not even worth my time. Kenyan banks mostly serve large Kenyan corporations or larger Kenyan enterprises. But for someone who needs maybe $500 or $1,000 of working capital, they say, well, it'll cost me more than that just to go acquire this guy and service his loan. So that's sort of like the core problem set I think I've been focused on for my career. And the first attempt to solve that was Grameen Bank model sort of community microfinance institutions. And that's really where I would say I cut my teeth. That's where I began my career when I was working on these development projects. We can talk about why they work or don't work, but that's sort of what we're what 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 we talk about when we when we mean credit and and why it's needed.
1: Yeah, it's it's a problem that I'm actually surprisingly familiar with. As you know, my sister runs a company uh, based out of Ghana that is working on attacking the same issue. And yeah, I mean, she'll, she'll give stories about the fact that like, if we're lucky, people have like kind of pencil and paper uh, accounting of, of their business and nobody's going to underwrite on that. And to your point, like there's a lot of small businesses that are not worth it to acquire. I want to get to like kind of how you're solving those. But first, I, I know you took a stop over. Okay in Tala, which is yep. one of the more famous examples of trying this. What'd you learn there? What were the challenges? And then I want to hear like how you ended up going from yeah. established company into web three to, to solve the problem.
0: Yeah. Maybe even I'll talk about like how I even got to Tala. Cause I think of my career just to sort of simplify it as like maybe three waves of microfinance, microfinance 1.0, 2.0, 3.0. And so 1.0 is like the first wave of of programs trying to solve that credit gap that I mentioned, which was largely rooted on community microfinance groups, like savings and borrowing groups. And this is how people have traditionally organized themselves for thousands of years. I mean, before there were banks, people were just saving and borrowing together and helping each other out. And so what what microfinance, the sort of the Grameen Bank, Muhammad Yunus model people might have read about in a college class or something, that was basically working with these groups that already exist, that have a lot of trust in each other. And just providing some financing and we get over that data underwriting problem, because even if like, let's say I'm in a group with you and five of our friends, you know, Paki, even if you default, I'm on the hook for you. So the microfinance institution knows someone's going to repay. The problem is these groups sort of break down once they get to a certain size. Like once you get beyond 15 or 20 people, people don't know each other. The trust is sort of gone. And it's really hard for these models to scale. I was working on these programs in South Sudan and basically the cost to operate was like for every new, say, five farmers you wanted in the group, you need to hire another loan officer. It's just not a model built scale. And in search of something more systemically change-making, that's what led me to Tala and what I call microfinance 2.0, sort of the fintech lending boom. And Tala was one of the first companies in this space. I think it was really the pioneer of what we now know as mobile lending, which is, you know, there are now hundreds of companies around the globe that do this, but it was a really revolutionary concept. The idea was there's three billion people in the world without a credit score. Many of them now have phones, and your phones have all this data about you. What if we use that phone data to underwrite people for a loan as small as ten dollars? Really like, revolutionary and powerful idea. And so powerful it, it scaled pretty rapidly in the six years or so that I was there with my co-founder. I think the company grew from something like six thousand to six million borrowers, which is, you know, a pretty rapid across. You mm-hmm. know, we went from just, you know, a handful of folks in Kenya to All of a sudden we're lending across Asia, Africa, and Latin America. I think what Tala got in scale and what FinTechs get in scale, sometimes I saw we sort of lost the beauty of community trust and ownership that I saw in Microfinance 1.0. And I think it was probably listening to like some Web3 podcast like with with Chris Dixon or some, you know, someone spitting the gospel talking about how, you know, why does Spotify make all the upside? instead of the musicians? Why does Uber get all the upside instead of the drivers? And I sort of was thinking, right, why did the fintechs get all the upside instead of the borrowers who are really fussing their butts? They're the ones who are like getting up at 4 a.m., running a bakery, working all day on their feet just to feed their families and be able to pay off those loans. And the idea for GIA really actually even came from some customer interviews I was doing. When I was in Kenya, I heard, I heard this a handful of times where people would say, hey, in my Sacco, a SACO is a savings and credit cooperative in Kenya, and they go by different names in different countries. But they'd say in my Sacco, after I repay my loan, I put my money in and I get shares. Like, you know, they, they effectively saying I'm an owner of this of this community, of this savings group. And I've been taking your guys' loans for a year now. Like, where? how come I can't get shares? know, I mean, I've seen the TechCrunch articles. I know how much you guys are worth. The reality is, even if we had wanted to, it's very difficult for a U.S.-based company um, to just distribute sort of fractional ownership around the globe. And even if you could, it's not really liquid, right? You can't do anything with those shares. But what's really exciting to me about crypto is this concept of programmable money and the idea of if you represent ownership or a claim to some revenues on chain with a token, and you can then program all sort of interesting use cases into that token. You can say, oh, the more of them you have, then you can unlock lower interest rates or higher loan amounts. That just felt really powerful. And that's sort of where the genesis idea came. Like, what if we provide blockchain-based financing? We'll give small loans to small entrepreneurs, but when they repay, we reward them with ownership. And so we turn them from sort of customers on the end of a one-way transaction to actually owners and builders of this ownership
1: economy. I remember when I was at my last company, Breather, we like went through this months long process of trying to figure out how to give all the folks who cleaned and operated our spaces equity in the company. And we did it and we gave it to them. We like had this big like town hall and we were so excited. And they're like, what the hell are you giving me? I guess like the education piece for you is solved Mm -hmm. by the fact that they get ownership in the socos, but like how much education is there on this whole concept? Are Philosophy is to meet people where they are and not try to shove
0: some innovative thing down their throat if they don't necessarily want that. And the reality is, our customers, our borrowers, our members—they want liquidity for their business. They want loans, yeah. not coming and clamoring like, "Oh, I want ownership!" Right? They just want a good lending product. So the begin—that's where we—that's where we start. And there, frankly, is just a massive gap in the market for someone providing affordable, flexible micro business financing. I think in emerging markets, what you see is Sort of banks don't do any, serve anyone under maybe $10,000. And then you have a bunch of these consumer fintech lenders who maybe give you loans up to, to say, 200. But from that like two hundred to 10000 gap, there's just this massive white space that's being underserved. And that's really where we are see ourselves playing. So just to begin with, that's what we're serving folks with. And that's the, the need we're meeting them with. When they repay, they're rewarded first with GIA points. Uh, so the GIA token itself is not live yet. And so a lot of this is being replicated right now with a point system that we're doing a lot of fun experiments with. And really, to you know, I think if we came out and said, your GIA point represents ownership in a global economic community, I think like your maybe your breather employees, they'd be like, uh, why? I don't, okay, just pay me more. <laughs> yep. uh, and I think that'd be a, that's a fair response. And so for us, like the points in, initially just represent something that they really need today, which is better credit terms. The more points you have, you can unlock lower interest rates or higher loan amounts or more flexible repayment periods. We begin to expand on that basic loyalty point by taking what people are already doing offline into this online world and just giving them more rewards for it. So for example, what would be really common in a SACO, say I was in a SACO with 10 people and I bring you in, Paki, and Paki's like, I want a loan. Well, in order for you to get it, I'd have to put up collateral for you, like effectively stake collateral. And this is really common. You'd take the loan, you'd repay, I'd get my collateral back, we'd all move on. But, you know, I should get some rewards for that because I, I let the loan happen. I let the Saco get more revenues. And so what we're doing is you can sort of stake your GIA points or eventually your GIA token on someone else you bring into the network and then you get rewarded because you've enabled that, that loan to happen. I think what's what's really happening here is we're just slightly changing the math around value distribution. It's not like a magic internet money or something like that. It's just people are actually creating value in the real world enough to pay off some interest. But instead of all of that interest being sucked out of out of say the Kenyan economy by a foreign lender, more of it just stays in there because some of it goes to borrower rewards, some of it goes to like the referrer or guarantor or sponsor rewards and just creating a bit more of a sustainable resilient economy that way. And so that's how we that's how we're beginning to unveil the crypto education. What happens next is once they get their GEO token, that's probably for most of our borrowers, their first cryptocurrency. There are some early adopters who are already kind of trading a little bit or or, or the, most, the most common desirable thing is just to hold some money in a US dollar stable coin. I mean, the Kenyan yeah. shilling is down 10, 20% at times against the dollar. Same with the Philippine peso, same with a lot of emerging markets economies. So people just want to hold USDC. And so those will probably be their first two crypto assets, right? Is As a geo token and USDC. And from there, we can, we now we have this trusted platform, this trusted relationship with these members that we can begin to roll out more products. And and I'd say it's not that, you no, know, it's not that if you're in Kenya right now, you can't just sign up for Binance or get some crypto wallet. This stuff exists, but it just hasn't taken off with mainstream adoption yet because it doesn't really meet an everyday need in their lives. Yeah. Like, yeah, I want to speculate or. Maybe a, this is a way for me to hold some money in dollars, but I'm not really going to use this in my everyday business. But by meeting people where they are, I think we really become that trusted platform.
1: What I love about the model is that it it feels like it's really taking all of these offline behaviors and mapping them to different things that you can do when the token or the points for now are programmable. Are there things that currently in the model you don't have programmed in, but that you think are really interesting kind of offline behavior that you'd like to build in at some point? Definitely. Well, one thing that I hear from folks
0: all the time is they don't just necessarily want capital, but they want resources more broadly to help them grow their business. It could be, I want access to a supplier with lower prices or different products or a really common thing now, especially in, you know, brought on by the pandemic and, just the growth of the internet is people want to go take their business online. Francis doesn't just want to sell his spices from get to market to the people in his immediate vicinity. He wants to have, I mean, at the very least let's get this guy a Facebook page. He can do some marketing, but then maybe set him up with the local equivalent of Shopify. So he can sell across Kenya, maybe even internationally. He doesn't necessarily have the resources or know how to do that. He's not a digital marketing expert. He's a local spice vendor expert. And I think so, so we're, what we're really interested in doing is creating not just a, financial services provider, but really this small business community. And I think a really powerful thing that we can do with these points or tokens is use them as uh, sort of a currency within that system to for 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 basically for small business providers to sort of barter or or swap services so that maybe Francis can get digital marketing from someone. It could be someone on the other side of the globe and, you know, keep that sort of small keep that keep that uh, economy within this within within this
1: circular group. That's super cool. So you just launched uh, and I, I just participated in the yes. very first pool. So congratulations. Where's that money going? Who are some of the first businesses who are going to be taking loans from GIA? Thank you.
0: Yes. So we just launched our, what we call our pioneer fund pools, our our first on-chain pool where investors from around the globe can deploy their, their liquidity, their capital, their US dollar stable coins, and effectively be financing small businesses. So right now those are financing a range of small businesses in Kenya and the Philippines. And thank you for your participation. We can like drop some links of how people could, could get in touch of how, to, how else to do it. But totally. primarily what that's funding is inventory financing and invoice financing across a couple of verticals. And I think the easiest way to think about this is in emerging markets, commerce is like very disaggregated. I mean, here in San Francisco, you walk down the street and there's like a CVS and a Walgreens, but in Nairobi, you might have a ton of just like roadside medical clinics here and there. And so we work with local partners that sort of aggregate or serve these networks of small businesses that have a need for liquidity. And I mentioned the medical clinic example because our first, our first partnership is with a company in Kenya called Ilara Health. They basically have a network of 2,000 small roadside clinics, and they provide low-cost devices for them. They also sell medicines at, at wholesale, and they just help these clinics run more effective healthcare service provision. All of the clinics want financing because they say, hey, I buy my medicine on Monday, but my patients don't come until Friday, and maybe they don't pay me for another week. And Ilara doesn't want that sort of sitting on their balance sheet. They want to use their balance sheet for going and signing up more clinics and selling more medicine, right? And so we step in and we partner with them as basically the inventory financing partner. We use a bunch of proprietary data that Ilara has, and we're able to reach these customers through this really trusted network. And I think that overcomes like two main hurdles in running a fintech lending business in emerging markets is one, overcoming trust, because people are going to be like, wait, who the hell are you trying to give me a loan? And overcoming data, because as we said earlier, it's not like they necessarily have a ton of data with the Kenyan Credit Bureau or something, right? And so it's more sort of, it sits in these silos and we're able to access that data through this partnership. We reward also the partner with some of these tokens. So they're part of this economy. And that's how we enable the clinics to buy their medicines on credit. And we have uh, about 10 of these partnerships live. Some of them are just partnering with the consumer goods retailers, people selling like flour and cooking oil from from a small roadside shop. And there's medical clinics and there's a handful of other industries, but that's effectively what you're financing.
1: How are you underwriting these folks? What do the interest rate terms look like? I know, you know, hearing from my sister, like the interest rates that they're able to access outside of GIA are like, eye-poppingly high she'll give me numbers yep. and i'll be like oh that's like not a terrible annual interest rate and she's like no no, no that's monthly what, so like w- what does what does the underwriting look like and then what do the interest rates look like that's right and actually i should mention so we are
0: running a pilot right now with your sister with megan i mean her company if everyone wants to look it up is called oze um and they are doing awesome work in ghana basically bringing msmes bringing like that's a acronym, micro, small, medium enterprises, bringing them online so that they have more digitized records so that they aren't just writing things in paper and pen and can access formal credit. And we're, we're providing that. And what we're providing for them actually is an invoice financing product. And that I think is a super interesting future space for what can happen on chain is if you can bring any real world asset that is sort of illiquid, like an invoice, and then unlock liquidity for it by providing some money in advance, that's an amazing use case for Blockchain, And so that's sort of what we're doing with them. And in a lot of ways, this is not like revolutionary, like blockchain based stuff, because they don't really have yeah. on chain data yet, although we're building that for them, because what happens when they take a loan is, even though it's abstracted from them, money is being off ramped from that liquidity pool, where money that you provided, you know, goes, and when they repay, it's being re on ramped so that the LPs can withdraw. So, the underwriting, a lot of it is just taking into consideration the basics about their business. I mean, we have a ton of proprietary data, as I mentioned, from these partners. That could be like their revenue, their expenses, their margins, even down to the SKU level. Like, what are they, how many antibiotics is this clinic selling every month? Right. And you can get into yeah. really interesting data based, sort of alternative data based underwriting. And some of it, I think, ends up basically being leveraging alternative data sources, which maybe banks aren't using. So, for example, in Kenya, It's really common for people to use mobile money to do transactions. A lot of times, even this guy selling spices, his customers might come by and want to pay them, want to pay not in cash or not with a bank transfer, but just on his phone. That's the most common way of accepting payments. And so we have partnered with a payment gateway in Kenya where we're able to access a ton of these mobile money receipts and use that to underwrite. So a lot of the, the game here is just there's all of this data out there that should be able to be. Used to prove someone's credit worthiness and the folks with money today just aren't looking at it or aren't able to make sense of it. And that is what we're what we're trying to do.
1: What was like a typical borrowing rate at Tala and then like what happens, you know, early days of GIA and then over time as people kind of build up their their reputation and their credit score and get tokens and and all of that?
0: Yeah. So consumer fintech lending app rates are typically something around fifteen percent for a one month product or thirty day product. And it does sound very high. And I think it's fair to for it to raise eyebrows in any context. It should be it's important to sort of understand that price is often a function of risk. And when you're doing a completely unsecured product to someone without a lot of data to underwrite, you end up having to charge that much. And why are people willing to pay it? Well, do they need it and they've made this calculus. It's not it's you know it's it's rare that I think people in low income settings are just like saying, ah, you know what, whatever. It's it's like, I'll just take without thinking. Like they're doing the math and they're often saying, huh, I could take this, you know, thousand shillings at 15% and be able to like run my shop for the day and I'll make way more than the 150 I have to pay. Or I could not and not run my shop and I won't get any income. What we are able to do at GIA is take those rates and cut them by one third. So the typical rate for our invoice and inventory financing products, it's a range, but what we're doing, I think, with 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 Oze in Ghana is a five percent product. We're doing some in in Kenya where it's as low as one percent per month. So it's like a twelve percent APR, yes. which is much more friendly in in anyone's eyes. But it's a range, of like based on based on our assessed risk. Because at the end of the day, what we're doing, of course, is not just providing access to financing. We are providing returns for investors. And I think this is a really interesting asset class that a, a lot of folks in the West, haven't been able to access. I mean, today with you, Packy, sitting in Philadelphia, wanted to participate in you know, some microloans in Kenya, probably the most realistic way it's going to happen is like maybe you have some money in the pension fund and that is invested in a hedge fund, which is invested in some private credit fund, which in some way made its down to a microfinance institution and giving a loan to someone in Kenya. But it's very difficult for you to like make that connection yourself And what we're doing on chain is just shrinking that distance and bringing people together in a more just real way. And I think the the thing I think about is like, uh, if, if we dream into the future and think of where we should be like in 20 years or whatever, is like if everyone can just like close their eyes, anyone who has any money that's sitting around and ready to make a return, you just like put it up there. And then anyone around the world who like has a legitimate use case for that can be like, yep, I'll take this. And then we just like Connect them in a more seamless way. That's sort of like the dream of crypto and DeFi, and it's sort of begun to happen in these very, very limited settings of sort of like DeFi dGens who play around with collateralized lending on chain. But that's not really going to serve, you know, the billions of people in the world who
1: need credit. What are some of the challenges of connecting the real world to to the blockchain?
0: So one of the things, as, as we already talked about, is sort of like customer education to begin with. Like, in yeah. order for this to work, people have to. Believe there is some value in them having, say, on-chain credit history. So we got to onboard them. The, the consumer interface has to has to get better. Uh, for the practical stuff in the back end, for this whole, you know, there's people talk about real world assets or RWA, I feel like it's like a hot acronym on Twitter. And we're beginning to see applications of that, say, in like U.S. real estate, like very well regulated spaces where everyone sort of knows what a lien means and who has claims to like the cash flows on a mortgage. What's harder to do is in an emerging market, how do you take that real world asset, that invoice I just mentioned on chain? So let's say we're talking about Francis selling his spices and he sells 10 kgs of sesame seeds to this guy who comes by and he sends him an invoice like, hey, pay me 500 shillings for these sesame seeds. Okay. So then we, what, we like take a picture of the invoice and we make an NFT and we bring it on chain, but like, okay, so what? Like, how do we know then that the restaurant owner is going to repay and then the, yeah. the owner of that NFT actually gets to claim that. And that actually requires some connection to the real world. Like it means maybe creating like new legal and regulatory structures to account for such an arrangement. It means connecting more like real world or, or web to uh, fit, uh, payments rails on chain so that it can be very seamless that when that restaurateur makes his payment, it just goes di- swoop, like directly on chain. And so I think that requires a lot of bridge building and so i don't think blockchain builders can do that all on their own without engaging with say regulators and that's why we talked to the capital markets authority in kenya and the sec in the philippines i think for defi's like next big push it's i mean everyone's talking about this but like it needs to interact more with tradfi and we need more linkages to the real world that i think are a bit more seamless and and not so like adversarial
1: yeah it's it's really easy to make the like oh we'll like leapfrog like we leapfrog to mobile phones we'll leapfrog to I mean and mobile money yeah. but leap leapfrog to to defi but you mentioned regulators there like I know in some countries like yeah. Nigeria is a minefield like how do you assess that risk and then figure out where it's even worth playing where you're going to get just kneecapped by regulators and yeah. the government like how do you think through that extra layer of complexity
0: yeah, I mean, part of the reason we started in the markets we have in, in Kenya and the Philippines is their market with, I think, more forward-thinking regulators. I mean, it was on Kenya under the Central Bank of Kenya's watch that M-Pesa was even launched, and they've traditionally been a frontier for fintech innovation. I wouldn't say any regime is really, like, crypto-friendly. I mean, maybe, like, El Salvador or like a couple other places but but there are people within Kenyan financial regulators who are really interested in seeing where this goes and ultimately their goal is we just want to deepen Kenya's capital markets. We know that we have 7 million micro entrepreneurs in Kenya who like need a collective I don't know some like 70 billion dollars and how do we unlo- how do we unlock that? And this is a way to do it. And I think if if that's the message you go to with regulators, uh, I think you're going to get more open audiences.
1: I did Kiva.org back in the day, and I felt really good about myself for giving my like $50. You mentioned like $70 billion. You talked about the $5 trillion gap. I mean, the US spent how many trillions of dollars on a COVID response for such like a big, persistent problem? Like why capitalism versus the world just being like, here's $5 trillion, like gap, gap filled?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question. You know, I actually think there are, just like to shout out like a couple other projects, there are kind of some interesting uh like web three projects that i think are maybe trying to reimagine our capitalist system even more fundamentally than what we're doing at g like there's this company called resource finance where they're trying to like basically take mutual credit societies on chain this idea that you shouldn't even have to take a loan because you know like communities should be more economically resilient than they are like at the end of the month say you got to take a loan because you can't pay your rent but like what if you actually have some like tomatoes in your kitchen and you're actually like a gardener or whatever like how do you just immediately unlock that in your community and it works it, you know if there's only 10 people then everyone knows each other and like no one really ends up going hungry and someone will help you out but the idea is how do you take that at scale and i think that's something blockchain can be really good for and we're working on a a partnership there but what we're doing i think is a bit it's kind of like an you know it's this incrementalist approach it says like yes capitalism is here to stay whether you can want to be ideological about it and say like Fuck fuck the system. But the reality is there are billions of people out there who have a need for access to financing and that's to feed their families and to make their communities happier places to live. And that's the system that we're working in because I don't think we necessarily need to overthrow the system. Like there is money out there that could go to these sustainable investment return producing assets. It's just that they're not finding them yet.
1: You've been working your whole career practically in this space, what are the examples that come to mind of when it's like really worked? Like, you mm. know, small business is able to access something, and then the person is able to grow their business to a hundredfold. Like, what are some of those examples you've yeah, seen? Yeah. I mean, anecdotally, I've seen those work.
0: I saw that this happened at Tala. Those are some of the coolest stories it was like literally meeting these two young women who were in university students in Kenya and basically were like broke, had no money, that hadn't had no money from their parents even to pay their school fees. They went down to this wholesale clothing market. They took a loan from Tala. They were able to buy whatever it was, like five or 10 t-shirts, come around and like 2X the, you know, sell them for twice as much, and just sort of like kept running that business and use Tala as their source of working capital. Anecdotally, I know tons of stories like that. Um, systemically, I don't think I've seen uh like one great shining example that's like, oh, this has totally rejuvenated a community yet. We're still working to get there. And I think part of the problem is. A lot of the successful fintech lending businesses, maybe they make some money, but it typically leaves the community at the end of the day to repay shareholders. And that's part of the idea here of creating this more economically resilient community where the borrowers are owners. And so they're actually building wealth and prosperity along with the GIA builders who might be in other parts of the world.
1: It's probably the right time. And you you gave a hint on the blockchain and money going anywhere around the world to anywhere that it needs to go peace. But like, what does the world look like in a decade, 20 years, whatever the right time frame is, if you're successful? What do these communities turn into? What What have you unlocked? I think the
0: biggest thing is just having more economically resilient and happy communities in the markets where we're operating or where like cats launch something too, which would be totally fine. Like uh, whatever it is, mimicry is the form of flattery or something. Like it would be a big difference to see If you go through a neighborhood in Nairobi, like Kibera or somewhere where people are like living in smaller homes and typically living like maybe day to day, paycheck to paycheck, just to pay rent and, you know, to see a family like that instead owning a home because they've been able to build wealth, I think would be really powerful. And that's what we'll see more of as we are able to deliver affordable financing for people to grow their businesses and then access to better ways to save and invest, grow their of financial reserves so they can
1: serve their family better. Amazing. Well, I am honored to be a, a small part of this journey, both as an investor in GIA and as one of the first pool participants. It's really been amazing getting to, to know you and, and see what you're doing here. Obviously, go GIA, go Sixers, Zach. Thank you for, for joining me. Amen. Go Sixers. Thanks so much, Becky. It's not boring. This story is about working hard even when it seems silly. It's not boring and for the people trying to make crazy things happen. It's that shot of to yeah. It's not boring. is for the optimist. Take a little shot of optimist. Take a little shot of optimists. Let's just zoom out and take a little shot of optimists.